Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. My guest this week has one of the wildest stories to tell about his career as a hit singer, songwriter, and live performer in a career that started in 1966 and is still going strong today. Tommy James is best known for his hit records like Moni Moni, I Think We're Alone Now, Crimson and Clover, Hanky Panky, and many others. But behind the music was his relationship with the infamous Morris Levy and Roulette Records, that while on the surface looked like a thriving independent record label, was also a front for the notorious Genovese crime family. Tommy has written an incredible autobiography, Me, the Mob, and the Music, which has become a bestseller for Simon & Schuster, was chosen by Rolling Stone magazine as one of the 25 greatest rock and roll memoirs of all time, and is soon to be made into a major motion picture. To date, Tommy has sold over 100 million records worldwide, has received five BMI Millionaire Awards in recognition of 22 million broadcast spins of his songs, and is still touring the country with his band, The Shondells. This interview was recorded in late 2017 in front of a live audience at the offices of Atlantic Records in New York City. All right. So a few years ago, a friend of mine asked me if I had read this book called Me, the Mob, and the Music, One Hell of a Ride with Tommy James and the Shondells. And I had said, no, I I had heard about it, but I hadn't read it. He's like, stop what you're doing right now. Get the book and read it. So I did. And for the next few days, I didn't do anything else. I could not put this book down. If Goodfellas, The Godfather, and The Music Business had a baby, it would be this book. So I read it, I loved it, I started telling everybody what my friend had told me, you gotta read this book, you gotta read this book, it's unbelievable. Then, fast forward to this summer, I'm listening to a podcast, and who is the guest on the podcast? Tommy James, talking about the book, which is soon to be a movie and singing some songs from his career. And I'm like, wow, I really, really love that book. And and this is awesome being able to hear him live on this podcast. And then literally that night, I went home and I live in New Jersey. I was reading New Jersey Monthly Magazine. There's an interview with Tommy James, who now lives in the state of New Jersey. And I'm like, this is a sign that Tommy James has to come and be a guest at Rock and Roll High School. So I reached out, Carol, Tommy's manager, and Tommy were nice enough to accommodate us and be here today. So without any further ado, please welcome Tommy James. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you. That was a nice introduction. Yeah, I just winged it. And would you like to introduce our uh, other guest today? my guitar player from the Shondells, uh, John Andalaro. John yeah, John. And uh, 
John and I do a lot of acoustic uh, stuff together, so I thought it'd be great if he came with us today. Thank Plus, you, John. Then you won't hear all my mistakes. Right. And so if we get to a point in the class where I start talking to John directly, yeah. you'll know that you know, nothing talks. personal. He right. talks and... Uh, there you go. Thank you, John. <laughs> so, Tommy, let's start at the beginning. Sure. You were born... I was. <laughs> at a very young age, right? You were born in Dayton, Ohio. Right. You moved to South Bend, Indiana. Yes. You moved to Wisconsin. Right. And you finally ended up in Niles, Michigan. That's right. And that's, uh, Niles, Michigan is my hometown. That's the one that uh, claims me anyway. That's where it all started for me from, oh, sixth grade on. Of course, I was playing guitar long before that. Uh, well, we'll talk about that. Sure. Because your dad ran a hotel? Mm-hmm. He was in the hotel business. And, you know, if things hadn't turned out right in the music business, you could have caught me at uh, Ed's Beds. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you when you guys moved for your dad's hotel job? Well, I was nine years old when my father started managing a little hotel in, uh, in Wisconsin. That's where I got my first guitar. We actually lived in the hotel. Was there a jukebox There the was hotel? a jukebox. The first thing I ran into when we moved there was uh, I went down into the bar. I can't tell you what it's like to be a nine-year-old alone in a bar. <laughs> you know, it was forbidden. Of course, I saw the first thing was all, I remember all the bottles. They looked like jewelry, you know, the lights coming through and everything. And they had oh, a pinball machine and they had one of those bowling machines <laughs> and they had a jukebox. And so I went right over the jukebox. What was really amazing, in this is 1956, by the way. I was nine years old. And what uh, really was startling was uh, the music business back then, was that on jukeboxes, there was this battle being waged between rock and roll, the early rock and roll guys, and the crooners. So you'd see, uh, you know, Eddie Fisher right next to... Uh, you know, Elvis, you'd see Patty Page next to uh, Little Richard, and... Uh, well, 1956 was, yeah, was very literally... schizophrenic, this could never Literally happen. the birth of the rock era. That's right. Right. I was very impressed with all that. I liked them both. I, you know, I was playing Patty Page, and I was playing um, Little Richard. I, my first encounter with Little Richard was a Long Tall Sally, and I remember hearing it on that jukebox, and that was... That was me from that point on. I just was hooked on rock and roll. I loved that song. I loved all the early rockers. They were dangerous people. The whole thing wasn't really settled. The issue wasn't settled until the next year uh, with American Bandstand the following summer. I remember the first episode of American Bandstand. I was, I was there. <laughs> I saw it on TV, and I loved it. And, of course, all the parents kind of relaxed when they saw... Dick Clark is the face of rock and roll. Very clean cut. Yes. Not dangerous. Right. Not dangerous. So anymore. did all of this inspire you to go out and get your first guitar? It did. I was, when I was nine, I saw Elvis the first time on uh, the Ed Sullivan Show. Of course, I had been playing the ukulele that my grandfather bought me before. I had always listened to the radio and was playing and singing uh, the ukulele. Of course, once I saw Elvis, the ukulele was out the window, you know. I said in the book, I felt like a kid in argyle socks and short pants playing when I looked at myself in the mirror playing the ukulele. So uh, I basically uh, talked my mom and dad into getting me a guitar. We were right across the street in the hotel, right across the street. It was a town square from uh, the local music shop. And they had 
two guitars went in the window the, the day after Elvis was on the Ed Sullivan show the first time, and I bought one of them. And I bought a cheap Stella acoustic guitar, which was uh, 1795, I think it was. And I had a guitar. That was, I was in heaven. And I learned everything I could from the radio and my record collection. I was, had a stack of 45s. That's how it started for me. From there, the next year, I got my first electric guitar, which was, that was a big career move. <laughs> at, um, at age 10. It was. And um, <laughs> I taught myself how to play guitar, which is really pretty awful. It's like speaking your own language that nobody else speaks. You can't learn anything. You can't teach anything. But I managed to fumble around and teach myself how to play the guitar. And when I learned uh, riffs uh, on the electric guitar from Gene Vincent and guys like that, I, I really was uh, uh, in heaven and uh, started my first band when I was 12 years old. We, had, we moved, by the way, from Monroe, Wisconsin to Niles, Michigan, and I started my first band in seventh grade. We played With, with classmates? Classmates, we started a little trio called the Tornadoes. Tom and the Tornadoes. Well, that was later. Okay. Got it. <laughs> it was just the Tornadoes. <laughs> when did you play your first gig? Played at my first gig when I was 13 years old for money. I couldn't believe somebody actually was going to pay me for doing this. You know, it was, it was either that or mow lawns, you know, so I figured it was a little bit better. Well, you never forget your first gig, I would No, imagine. it was at the American Legion Hall in uh, Niles, Michigan in 1960. Like I say, I just couldn't believe they were actually paying me money. I think I made $11. And, uh, were they covers or were they originals? Oh, all covers. I mean, I, but what's an original? I didn't even know what that meant. So yeah, we played the Everly Brothers and we played all the songs that we knew, which wasn't very many, but we made it through a gig. And then we just started playing more and more gigs. How was the response? We had a little following. I mean, it was pretty amazing. And then I got a job in a record shop in Niles, uh, the Spinet Record Shop, when I was 14. And, you know, I could promote my band out of the record shop, which was great. I learned the trade papers. I learned the labels. I learned the songwriters. I learned the publishers. And did you listen to every record when it came into the shop? Oh, sure. Sure. So I was selling records, but I got to promote my band, too, which was a big deal. To me, I, th I thought this was the greatest job in the city of Niles. I don't know how I could get any hipper than that. Gradually, uh, as I was learning what ended up being my craft, it was like going to school. And we had our first little label deal. It was a one-stop distributor from Singer One Stop uh, in Chicago who, you know, they kind of... Uh, delivered records to the, the vessels of the music business, you know, the capillaries, mm -hmm. the mom and pop stores. And we made our first record called Log Ponytail. It was a cover of the Fireballs. Mm -hmm. It came out and we had a little following. We, we actually were on the jukeboxes with printed, you know, it wasn't handwritten, it was printed. And we were very impressed with that. Do you, th do you think one of the records made its way into the jukebox at the hotel back in Wisconsin? Well, that could have happened. <laughs> but, but, you know, what was really amazing, though, is that we had a, we, you know, the record died pretty quick. But then we uh, were approached by a local disc jockey the year later named Jack Douglas, who brought us into the WNIL radio studio, and we recorded four more sides, one of them being a song called Hanky Panky. And this was when I was 16. The record came out as a single locally on Snap Records. We also changed our name to the Shondells. 
How, how did the tornadoes become the Shondells? They just died. <laughs> <laughs> it's just... So uh, we were the Shondells, and we played a few more gigs, and again, the record died. But we went number one in about six counties. Well, <laughs> let's back up one second. How did you first hear Hanky Panky? Hanky Panky was a record I heard another band play. I was able to sneak in. I looked a little older, and I could sneak into the... Uh, to Shula's nightclub on Sunday, and I watched the house band play Hanky Panky, and I saw the reaction of people. I couldn't believe how many times they got requested to play Hanky Panky. I said, we got to do that. And, Did uh, you have any idea where the song came from? Yes, it was written by Jeff Berry and Alec Greenwich. It turned out, I, I had no idea at the time, but we looked it up. It was the flip side of a song by the Raindrops called That Boy John. Uh, Jeff and Ellie were the Raindrops. That Boy John was a song written about JFK, and when he was killed, they took the uh, record off the market. Of course, the B-side went with it, so it was really a very rare record. It wasn't something you could go out and buy. So it was just a stroke of luck that the local band decided to play that song that night. That's correct. So all I could remember was six words, my baby does the hanky-panky, and we sang it 106 times, you know. (laughs) And then we made up the I saw her walking on down the line or whatever that jive was. So... But that was our record, and it came out, and we, um, as I said, it, it, it did well wherever it was on the radio, but it was not on the radio very many places. So uh, the record came and went, and I graduated from high school in 1965. I'm sorry, I don't mean to get so long-winded, but this really was how it started. Oh, it's fascinating. Me. I took my band on the road up through Chicago and Wisconsin and Illinois, and we played clubs. We played, you know, two weeks in this place and two weeks in another. And right in the middle of my two weeks in early 1966, the club we were in, this dumpy little bar in Janesville, Wisconsin, goes belly up, and the guy gets shut down by the IRS for not paying his taxes. And um, so we were let go, and we went home feeling like real dogs, real losers, But that's how the good Lord works, because uh, as soon as I got home, I got a call from Pittsburgh that changed my life, that uh, Hanky Panky, this record that had been out two years earlier, was suddenly sitting at number one in the city of Pittsburgh, uh, only in America. (laughs) And yeah, really, and... and, and, uh, Any any idea how that happened? Well, yeah, we found out later. One copy ended up in a record bin, and it was picked up by a local DJ who played out and played different clubs, played dances. And so he picks up Hanky Pan- this copy, Hanky Panky, and they had an underground record market in Pittsburgh at the time. And these local guys, if a record caught on, they'd bootleg it, and they'd sell it locally and never tell anybody. And they'd all make money, and that was, that's what they did with Hanky Panky. Only they couldn't keep it quiet because it really exploded. They started playing it on the radio, and it instantly went to number one. It was the biggest record Pittsburgh had ever had up to that point. It started making it in all the other, all the other surrounding towns. So they tracked me down, because on the record it said, Snap Records, Niles, Michigan. And where did they call? But the record shop where I used to work. And then they traced me to my home, And if I hadn't have been home at that moment from being fired, you and I wouldn't be talking today. And that's just how miraculous the whole thing is. How old were you when you got that call? I was 18. Amazing. They asked me to come to Pittsburgh. I couldn't put the original group back together. So I went to Pittsburgh with just the record producer. And sure enough, outside the city limits, I'm nobody. As soon as we 
cross the city limits, I have the number one record. It's really bizarre. But a, a wonderful feeling. So we did local television, and I had to uh, put a group together, so sort of took the first club band I could find to be the Shondells, and they were terrific. They, they sang great, and we from, knew a lot of... From Pittsburgh? From Pittsburgh, yeah. They became the new Shondells, and a week later, we're in New York selling the master. Got it. So, so that's, that's where it really gets interesting. So let's talk about selling the master, because as an A&R guy... Whenever there's a record that is starting to happen regionally, all the A&R guys start saying, hey, we have to sign that record, because if it's a hit in Pittsburgh, it's probably a yeah. hit everywhere else. And Pittsburgh was a major market, so it was an important market. So you start getting calls from labels. We, we, we came to New York. My new manager, who I sort of picked up in Pittsburgh, was the guy who brought us into town. Oh, we went. To, we got a yes from Epic. We got a yes from CBS. We got a yes from Atlantic. We got a yes from uh, Cam. Do you remember Kamasutra Records? Sure. And uh, yeah, it was phenomenal. I just couldn't believe it. And I, the last place we took the record to was Roulette Records, you know, which was a good indie label, but it certainly wasn't one of the big corporate labels. And so uh, I went to bed that night feeling really great. We stayed at what was then the City Squire, which is the Sheridan today. About 9.30 the next morning, I start getting calls from, we start getting calls from all the record companies that had said yes the day before. And they all called and said, listen, Tom, we got to pass. And I said, uh, I mean, every one of them, right in a row. And I, 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 I said, so we had a deal. Finally, Jerry Wexler at Atlantic Records told me the truth. That Morris Levy over at Roulette Records, who uh, was pretty much a thug, <laughs> we didn't know that, called all the other labels and said, uh, this is my freaking record, back off. And, and they all did, every one of them. And why do you think they all backed off? I, I don't know. I could never <laughs> figure it out. So, uh, uh, honestly, uh, it was the first offer we couldn't refuse. <laughs> it was... <laughs> We apparently were going to be on roulette records. And, you know, uh, we went up. Uh, I, actually, I went alone. I went up there, and I, Morris was right out of central casting. I mean, he should have been in a movie. He was about 6'4", weighed 300 pounds, and he talked like this. And you grabbed his hand, and it was like grabbing a catcher's mitt, you know. <laughs> and it, it was... Uh, Startling, really was. And I couldn't take my eyes off the guy. I just I was like, I felt like I was watching a great actor. So he says, I hope you're ready, kid, because you're about to go on one hell of a ride. And that's where we got the, the title for the book. But at any rate, uh, we signed with, with Roulette. Sure enough, I mean, he took the record to number one all over the world. My baby does a hanky panky. My baby does a hanky panky. You know, if we had been with one of the corporate labels, I can tell you right now, we would have been handed over to some A&R guy, and that's probably the last time anybody would have heard from us, especially with a record like Hanky Panky, which was a fluke to begin with. So the next thing that happened is I somehow had to follow that up. 
How many artists at the time were writing their own material? At that time? We're talking about 1966. 66. Well, not that many, actually. There, I was very impressed with Kama Sutra, who had a lot of young writers, and they were very artist-oriented. So was Atlantic. I mean, but uh, Kama Sutra had a lot of young writers at that moment, and uh, I was very lucky to get a couple of them. One thing about, I must say about Roulette was they allowed me, because they, they hadn't had a hit, really, since Easier Said Than Done by the Essex, I mean, three years before. They hadn't had a hit in a long time, and they really needed us. And they allowed me and, to put together a crew that I really loved. And I would have never had that kind of freedom at one of the other labels. First of all, we, the competition would have been incredible because there have been so many other artists. But... I would have never been given the keys to the candy store like I was at Roulette. So starts this very complex relationship yes. between you and Morris Lee. Right. But first things first is you have to follow up Hanky Panky. That's so, right. So you talk about meeting some of the Kama Sutra writers, right. which is where you met Richie Cordell. Right? That's right. Richie Cordell and Bo Gentry uh, were two producers and writers from Kama Sutra that uh, I became friendly with. Thank God for them because... I really didn't know what I was doing. I was 18, well, I had just turned 19. I had no idea what I was doing. I, I was not a songwriter at the time. I really uh, had no idea how to make records other than, uh, you know, stand there and play it. But I mean, layering records and all the nuanced things that were new at that moment. And so Richie and Bo became my first producers, literally taught me how to make records. And one day they said, we have been working on something all night. We'd like to play it for you. Right. It was called I Think We're Alone Now. Awesome. They brought it to me, and it was, when they brought it to me, it was a ballad. I mean, not a real slow ballad, but I mean, it was slow. But you could hear that, that it was, you could hear the hook. It was a smash. I just loved it first time I heard it. And uh, we went in and did a demo of it. This is in late 66. And went in and did a demo, and that's where we came up with the doom, 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 the eighth, no, uh, eighth notes. That took a ballad and made it feel yes. fast. Yes, and that really was sort of, was the signature. Took it back and played it for Morris. He flipped out over it, and we went in and we actually did the vocal Christmas Eve, 1966. So it was a great Christmas present. So that comes out and becomes another smash. Yes. I think we're alone now really made a difference in my life because we moved from bell sound to allegro sound, which was a much more creative studio. It was in the basement of 1650. In fact, it was Kama Sutra's old demo studio. A new engineer. I brought Jimmy Wisner on board. And we began really learning how to make records. One of the things that was interesting about I think we're alone now from a radio standpoint because we learned to make radio records. And I heard it said, and it just blew me away, that we're not writing songs, we're writing records. And that really changed my whole perspective on things. Well, I think we're alone now. You know, usually the, the pattern was you would, verse one, verse two got louder, and finally you, you did a bridge, then you went to the hook, and the hook was the loudest thing in the record. Well, with I think we're alone now, it was just the opposite. 
we stepped down into the hook, and it was, uh, I realized that uh, with all the expanders and the limiting and compression on radio, that the softer it was, the louder it was on radio. It's just the science of AM radio. So we really, I learned so much on that record about how to make records, and I made it right alongside Bo and Richie, even though they, they, uh, they ran the thing, and I was, so confident, so much more confident after I think we're alone now. It made a big difference. So Hanky Panky and I Think We're Alone Now are your first two songs that come out and that are smashes. But you didn't write either of them. When did you have the confidence to say, you know, I can do this. I can, I can write my own hit song. Well, that took a while. Uh, we, we followed up. I Think We're Alone Now with Mirage, which, by the way, was I Think We're Alone Now backwards. It sounds like one of those 60s press agents, you know. It was, but Mirage, the, the, uh, we, uh, well, we all got high and took the mix of I Think We're Alone Now home and listened to it over at Bo's house, at Bo's apartment. You know, back then on the reel-to-reel tape, if you got it upside down, it played backwards. So, uh, and we were just high enough so we listened to it and say hey you know that's not bad <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so Bo and Richie went off and wrote it and it became the next record Mirage but I see you coming into view and your face is telling me that you oh yeah oh wanna be by my side oh yeah oh I was finally tired here's on That's how things happened, by the way, back there. You never knew what crazy idea was going to come, and you could do anything. Anything you could think of was fair game. So Mirage came out, then getting together. I liked the way, and the, the whole I Think We're Alone Now album uh, went platinum for us. We were really uh, uh, amazed at how, how, how quickly that, that became a hit. That and that album. was unusual for Roulette. It was. Because they were roulette, singles, not right. albums. They were right? not selling albums like Atlantic right. was. Uh, but of course, the album market hadn't really exploded yet. That was another year. Right, we're still talking about AM radio yes, and not FM radio. Absolutely. Gradually, I watched, I watched them uh, make records, and I just thought, I can do that, I think. So with Moni Moni, which really was a... We started it with Brooks Arthur down at uh, Century Sound. Had no name for the record. I mean, it was just, we were, we were going to make a party rock record. That's all I, want, I knew. I wanted to make that, a party rock. This is rock. you and Richie? Yes. By the way, Bo had a big falling out with Morris. So Richie and I kind of took over, and I, I got much more involved in the production. Of course, Morris didn't pay him either. Crime doesn't pay, by the way. <laughs> at any rate, as we... Uh, uh, made made this record and it was just with the drums and uh, John played bass on it. Uh, he did too. Yeah, I, 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 it was great. You did a nice part. And so you're, anyway, you're writing it, but you need a title. We had no title, and this is a, another true story. It was uh, we had p- slaved to put this thing together. We and it's the night before I'm supposed to do the lead vocal, and Richie and I are up in my apartment at 52nd and 8th, and we're going. Uh, what are we going to do? We're looking for like a Sloopy or a Boney Maroney or some nonsensical name. Two-syllable name. And uh, so we throw our guitars down. We go out 
on the terrace and light up a cigarette. And the first thing our eyes fall on is the Mutual of New York sign. And, you know, with the, with the uh, dollar sign in the middle of the O. The money building. Gave you, yeah, it right. gave you the time and the weather. We just started laughing. Because both of us saw it at the same time. That's the perfect Mutual line. of New York. That's it. M-O-N-Y. That's right. And uh, it was like uh, God said, there's the title. <laughs> so I was, God sounds a lot like Morris Levy. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to tell the difference. Um, so, so anyway, uh, Moni was born. And uh, it, the, the recording itself was a big party that got captured on tape. We were bringing in people off the street to clap and scream. And, and that was that Alle- Allegro? Yeah, Allegro. Yeah, it was really fun. We had the secretaries from all the publishing right. companies and everything came down. And uh, there must have been 100 people in the studio when we made that record. Jumping around a little bit, Billy Idol had a smash yeah. years later with that song. Right. So as the songwriter and the creator, mm-hmm. how do you feel the next generation when someone reinterprets Oh, I love it. I am so flattered and honored when uh, a new group or, or somebody totally different does their version of our songs. I, I am just amazed. We've had over 300 cover versions of our songs done from... Uh, Oh, God, from R.E.M. to the Boston Pops. I, you know. What'd you say out there? Prince? What is it? Prince? Oh, yeah. Prince did a magnificent version of Crimson and Clover uh, not too long before he died. Wow. Uh, very futuristic. And he went number one on the, uh, the Lotus Flower album. It was first digital, only digital. And nobody had ever done that before. And Crimson and Clover was the first single from that album. Did you enjoy these versions oh, of your yeah. songs? I love them. I'm, I'm Did you ever hear one and say, no, that's not how it goes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I don't care. Uh, no, listen, uh, I think it's wonderful. And I'm always amazed. Dolly Parton and I uh, did a duet of Crimson and Clover. And she really rearranged it. She did her half down in Nashville. I did... Mine in New York, and we got together at Radio City. She made the fade, the hook, uh, Crimson and Clover, over and over. That was uh, just an, an amazing little record. Dolly did it with the banjos. <laughs> shows you the strength of a copyright. I mean, the, the power of a copyright, where you can create I you something. you said the power of comedy. Yeah, not too. <laughs> but you can create something yeah. one night looking at the Moni building, and all of a sudden, 10 years, 20 years, 100 years later, that song is going to be around. I think one of the most amazing things, and we've been very, very lucky to have the public's attention for so long. Very, very fortunate and blessed. What I'm really saying is that 
how something so goofy, uh, I'm, I'm amazed at how some of the decisions get made in the music business that have these Me everlasting too. effects. <laughs> you know, why did you release that record? Oh, my kid likes it. You know, I, that, those were the kind of answers you'd get. And especially in the 60s. By the way, I thought the 80s were very much like the 60s. Better electronics, but... <laughs> Uh, you know, that was a, a marvelous time like that. The 60s, anything could happen. You walk out your door, before you get home that night, something spectacular can happen. Well, let's, ta let's talk about that for one second. Sure. Because when I think a lot of people here, while you know the songs, you may not know everything else that was going on in the 60s at the time, you somehow became a part of. Talk about Robert Kennedy, talk about uh, Hubert Humphrey and how politics started entering your life back then. Well, in 68, uh, of course, uh, Moni was, uh, was a, a, a huge record for us and uh, uh, went number one all over the planet, really. And uh, right at that moment, all of the uh, presidential candidates were announcing spring of uh, 68. We were asked to perform at a, uh, a ra big rally for the Democratic Party in, uh, in Lower Manhattan. I don't know how many of you, if anybody's old enough to remember this, uh, but uh, at the, of course, Eugene McCarthy was running. Johnson had bowed out. Hubert Humphrey was running, vice president. Uh, Robert Kennedy had just announced, and Mayor Lindsay. <laughs> The mayor of New York was running also. And so uh, they were all speaking there at this thing. And in fact, I don't recall another rally ever having all of the candidates there. So we were asked to perform. And so we did. And of course, the issues of that moment were just unbelievable. The, the country was falling apart. The, the, it was really torn even more than today. The point I'm making is that we played and got put on a list, and we were asked if we would perform. We were called a, a few a couple weeks later and asked if we would perform at the uh, Democratic business in L.A. at the Ambassador Hotel. They were going to have. They anticipated he was going to win. Kennedy was going to win, and asked if he did if we, if we would be there. And uh, we were very flattered, but I. We couldn't uh, because we were playing in, of all places, Dallas, Texas. And this was amazing because we played the gig, and then this is the night before RFK was shot. I had always wanted to go to Daly Plaza and see the scene of the assassination. And so uh, we went there, and I was, I was struck by how tiny it was. You know, you're used to seeing it on television, and, and it looks large. It's a tiny little area. I felt so creepy. We went... I went back home, we took our plane home, and I just felt so awful, just so creepy, because I remember that day like it was last week. And I got home just in time to turn on the TV and see that Bobby Kennedy had been killed. So I just went into a funk for about three weeks that, uh, I mean, I really couldn't explain. I was really, back then everybody thought a politician could actually do something, but I was really a Kennedy guy. I thought we were going to have the Kennedy thing again, you know, and I was uh, 21 years old. So I really had kind of lost all hope after that politically. Suddenly we get a call from Hubert Humphrey's office, the vice president who's running for president, and uh, asked if we could possibly perform a few rallies. And 
we said yes. He, they called roulette. We were to meet him in, I think it was Wheeling, West Virginia, right after the convention. They anticipated him winning. You know, we're watching the convention, and all of a sudden, all the kids are getting beat up in Chicago. And, you know, we're going, what in the hell have we got ourselves into with this? Uh, is every rally going to be like this? Are we going to, is there going to be this kind of ugliness everywhere we play? We didn't know what to think, and we went to Wheeling, West Virginia, the following, I don't know, Tuesday or Wednesday. He couldn't have been nicer, Hubert Humphrey. He uh, uh, introduced me to his wife and sat me down. We, we opened the show for him. That was our gig. We would open, and uh, this was his way of showing the youth vote and so forth. And he sat me down right next to uh, Muriel, his wife. It went great. And it was in an airplane hangar in Wheeling, West Virginia. And then he asked if we would continue. And so we ended up, before we knew it, doing the whole campaign. I mean, he told us how he was going to end the Vietnam War. He told us, uh, just amazing, he shared a lot of things with us because we were all interested in politics. It was an incredible moment. And then, of course, we were with him the night he lost at the Lemington Hotel, playing on all three networks. At five o'clock, we went up to our rooms, five o'clock in the morning, and the voting machines in Chicago and, and all over Cook County uh, broke down, mysteriously broke down. And at seven o'clock, uh, they all came back on and, oop, Nixon won. Everybody wanted him to do a recount, which he wouldn't do. I mean, he said the country's been through enough. He never did, w would do a recount. So it's pretty amazing. He then wrote the liner notes to the Crimson and Clover album for us. <laughs> you know, it was just feeling like I was right in the middle of my generation. It was really a, an amazing moment. Well, think about it. You're a kid in Niles, Michigan, who all you want to do is buy that guitar in the window. That's right. <laughs> and here well, you Look are, at the trouble yeah, it got me in. And here you are with uh, the vice president of the United States of America campaigning for him to be elected president. I probably shouldn't tell this, but... We gave him uppers. <laughs> we gave him, I gave him a couple of black beauties. Shame on me. It's amazing I didn't go to jail. Uh, Is there a statute of limitations? He says, Tommy, those damn things kept me up all night. <laughs> well, back to the music for a second here. So let's talk about Crimson and Clover. Sure. Where did the idea come from? When we went out on the Humphrey campaign, this would have been August when the, after the convention, when we left town, the biggest acts on the radio were the Rascals on Atlantic, <laughs> Gary Puckett, us, uh, the Association. I mean, I mean, I'm leaving a ton of people out, but it was all singles. Very pop. Yes. When we got back 90 days later, it was all albums. Because In 90 days, the industry turned upside down. And was that all because of the Beatles? I think it was mostly because of the Sgt. Pepper album, which had been... The record companies saw how much more money they could make with albums, and suddenly everything changed. And I mean night and day. We came back, it was Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Led Zeppelin, Joe Cocker... Uh, you, it, it was Rolling just, Stones. yeah, yeah, just astonishing, the, the change. And, and, there was, and this, was FM radio now yes, becoming FM, FM radio had suddenly come into its own out of nowhere. 68 was huge. All this, the technology from the space program was coming down into the media, television studios and, and recording studios. And 
We went literally in a year and a half from four track to 24 tracks in the studio. And FM radio, who had always played you know, jazz and, and classical music, suddenly was playing rock and roll, WOR in, in New York, uh, K-San, San Francisco. And, and, so uh, was Crimson and Clover the song that got you from AM we to had FM? Just, yes. And at that ver- we were very lucky that at that moment we were working on Crimson and Clover. It was the first time I was all by myself producing the group. I don't think any record since our first record meant that much because it completely changed our style. There was this mass extinction of pop acts at that moment. And... Our career was going to end if we didn't start selling albums, and which is something Roulette never did. And there's no other record we ever made that would have allowed us to make that jump from AN Top 40 singles to FM progressive album rock and actually sell albums like Crimson and Clover. It was the right record at the right moment. It was our biggest record. It, we did five and a half million units in, you know, 12 weeks. It really allowed us to have the second half of our career. How did you come up with the production ideas in the studio? I wrote the song in about 15 minutes. It just came to me, uh, came to me in the early morning. It was just two of my favorite words put together. I, I didn't know what it meant, so it, uh, we just turned it into a little love song. And uh, when we went in the studio, I really uh, felt that we were onto something special. Uh, we did the whole production. I played. Uh, everything except bass and drums. Eddie came in later on the long version and did the, uh, that's a whole other story, did the, the, the uh, uh, Hawaiian guitar. But um, uh, it was uh, put together very quickly, five hours. We put the whole, one session, put the whole record together. And listen, I, I don't know if I told you this yet, when I saw you before, but I had to play in Chicago that weekend. And I had this little work tape, uh, just a seven and a half work tape that I, you know, mixed with my elbows, <laughs> just had the faders up to, to, so I was the only one who was going to hear it. And I took it up to John Rook at WLS in Chicago, which at that time was the biggest AM station in the country. And I played it for him, and he flipped out. And he brings in Larry Lujak, who he had just hired, and uh, brought him over. and said, Larry, play, I played it. He played it, and, he, and unbeknownst to me, they taped my tape. <laughs> and as I'm getting back into the car, I hear, world exclusive on WLS. Oh, and I, what? And he's playing my rough mix. I got back to uh, Roulette, and Morris says, what the fuck did you do? <laughs> because they were planning a big release. I said, I don't know. And Red Schwartz called up John Rook and said, look, I'm flattered you're playing the record, but we had a whole thing planned. It's not the mix. So we had to release the record like that. We had to release the seven and a half rough mix. I never got to mix the record. So what we know today as Crimson and Clover is that seven and a half rough mix. That's truth. And that's why. <laughs> How did you come up with the uh, underwater sound effect? Oh, that was just tremolo on the guitar. We had done it with the guitar. I said, so what would happen if we uh, did that to the vocals? So we just, that's one of those decisions that just gets made in 30 seconds. And we just uh, uh, ran the three voices out through the, um, you know, an RCA plug into the guitar amplifier and then mic the guitar amp and ran it back into the board. And that was it. Uh, it was as rough as you could possibly get, but it became the signature song for the, uh, for the record and made all the difference in the world. 
And as anyone here who works with radio promotion knows, that you can't give one radio station an exclusive mm. over the other one. So there was a gift waiting for you when you oh, got back yes. to Roulette, right? Well said, yes. Uh, what had happened is, because uh, John Rook at LS started playing the record, WCFL, uh, Jim Stagg over at CFL, program CFL, they were in a head-to-head 50,000-watt shootout. Uh, in Chicago at that moment, and uh, so because we hadn't given him uh, equal time, he sent a death wreath uh, <laughs> to Roulette on the death of Tommy James and the Shondells at WCFL Radio in Chicago, and so we had a hell of a time getting him to play the record. John Brook then said, I'm playing it every 20 minutes, he's going to have to play the record, so. And then does Morris pick up the phone and say... About that, uh, about that decision you made, you may want to rethink it? <laughs> well, you know, Morris definitely uh, had a talk with him. I'm sure, well, I'm not sure how much effect it had on him, but he played the record. You know, that was the other thing. Uh, you know, some, lost in all this is the fact that behind everything we're talking about was this very dark and sinister story going on behind us because Roulette was not only a functioning indie label, but it was also a front for the Genovese crime family. Tommy Eberle, who took over as boss, as head of the family after Vito Genovese died, uh, was Morris's business partner. And these are guys you're running into when you're up for label I go meetings. Up, I go up, uh, we meet somebody in Morris's office, and a week later I'm seeing him on TV doing the perp walk, you know, in handcuffs, coming out of uh, a warehouse in New Jersey. Isn't that the guy we just met in Morris's office? And it was. They were dealing heroin, they were uh, laundering money, they were loan sharking, and this was, and these guys that you all recognized on TV were all hanging out in Morris's office like it was a social club. And we had to pretend we didn't see any of this. But yet, we were having hit after hit after hit. And so we had to make a decision, because we were good earners, we had to make a decision uh, whether to try to sue and take our lives in our hands and, and get out of this thing or just go along with it. Because we were making our road monies, we were making BMI monies, but there was between 30 and 40 mil that we just weren't going to see. And from mechanical royalties and publishing. At what point, hit after hit after hit, did you realize we're not going to get paid? Well, pretty early on, actually, we, we started having real questions about, uh, about the money. And, uh, and if you... If you would ask Morris where the money is, or if yeah. you sent an accountant in to ask Morris where the yeah, money talk is. Talk to Howard Fisher. <laughs> talk to Howard. And I said, Howard, so listen, aren't we supposed to be making something? He says, yeah, we'd love to pay you, Tom, but you're cross-collateralized. That was always the answer. <laughs> you're cross-collateralized. Oh, I am. He says, what does that mean? I did no money. <laughs> Cross-collateral. What did Morris say to your accountant? Well, then I had an accountant from the outside come in. His name was Aaron Schechter, and this little guy was really feisty. He came in, and this is later on. He said to Morris, um, well, let me back up. We could never get an honest account because he had 12 sets of books. The IRS had an office and could never get Morris. He would bootleg his own product to not pay the artist. It was the damnedest thing I ever saw. It was a great idea. We knew we were getting shafted. So Aaron, instead of trying to get a hold of the books, 
went after the company that made the labels, the paper, and got a real count, and told Morris about it, and he says, you ever use that and they'll fish you out of the freaking river. And that was the end of my uh, <laughs> <Your audit> investigation. <laughs> yes, right. And uh, it scared everybody pretty bad. And he, he meant it. You know what he did to Jimmy Rogers. I was just going to ask that. For anyone here who does not know the Jimmy Rogers story, can you, uh, can you fill us in? Well, Jimmy Rogers, of course, was a big star in the 50s had honeycomb and kisses sweeter than wine. He was on roulette. He was not getting paid, you know. Morris screwed everybody, you know. There was no, uh, no pride with Morris. He didn't get paid, and he started a lawsuit, and he wouldn't stop. And he came at him and came at him and came at him, and finally they, uh, in 66, I believe it was, they left him for dead on, the L on an L.A. freeway. They pulled him over as cops and beat him so bad they thought he was dead. If he hadn't have been you know, an athlete and in really good shape, he would have died. And he was never the same after that. You know, he'd appear on TV and he could hardly walk. And uh, they really messed him up. So that's what was awaiting us, if, uh, or me, actually, if I had pushed it too far. So, but, you know, in the end... Uh, I get to tell the story, so, you know, it's not, all things even out. I mean, the, the remarkable thing when I read this book was here's a guy who cheated you out of $40 million in earnings in publishing and mechanical royalties, yet the affection and the bond that you still feel for him is incredible because you realize that without him, the mu you know, the music you made would not be... Listen, what if it hadn't have been for Morris Levy, there would have never been a Tommy James. And that is the truth. He really is the star of the show in this book. You know, the rest of us are just sort of reacting to him. All I can say, it was, it was like an abusive father-son relationship, as close as I can come. Uh, we came from two different walks of life. You know, the, the father slaps the kid around, but he sends him to college. And that's kind of how it was. Uh, when we wrote this book, I really tried to be fair. And, you know, Morris also saved my tail with the draft board. In late 68, I get a letter from the government that says your 3A status has just been changed to 1A. And, oh, by the way, would you come to Whitehall Street February 3rd? And so I'm freaking out because, uh, you know, it means going to Vietnam. It means, uh, um, you know, I'd had several of my friends go over there. A bunch of them didn't come back. And so I, I knew what awaited me with a 1A draft number. So uh, I, I went to a shrink and had him write letters that I was a, oh, I was a bedwetter. <laughs> what else could I possibly be? And, uh, you know, none of that seemed to work. Morris, on the other hand, was on the board of directors of the Chemical Bank, right? You can't make this crap up. Um, you talk about the cat guarding the milk, right? <laughs> And one of his best friends on the board just happened to be the head of selective service in New York. And he talked to him. When I went down for my draft physical, I'm almost ashamed to say this because a lot of guys had to go. And I, but I went down there, and it was the week I did the first Ed Sullivan show. 
And uh, so I got recognized, and I'm signing, I'm signing stuff. By the way, I happened to be colorblind, which would have kept me out of nighttime combat. In the day, I can take the hill, but at night, I got to sit there. What happened was uh, I spent the whole day there. Nate McCalla takes me down. Do you know Nate? Nate, Nate was uh, the enforcer up at Roulette, and he takes me uh, to do the draft physical. And at the end of the day, I, I'm standing there in line, Everybody's there, there's three very stone-faced army guys with crew cuts, and you can see the blood going through their veins. And, I'm, and there's, they're giving everybody their their new draft status and when they're approximately they're going to leave. And I go up and get mine, and he slaps it down. He says, "I don't know who the hell you know." And I picked it up and I said, "4 F," which means I'm done. I just said. Thank you very much. <laughs> I left, and that was the last I ever heard from it. And Morris did that and probably saved my life. Tell the story about Morris and the guy who had to have surgery for his son. Yeah, he, well, Morris would, would do kind things out of no, you wouldn't expect. Uh, this one guy was bootlegging his records. They went to beat him up with baseball bats, and the guy says, I, no, I did. he talked about his kids in the hospital, he, having to have surgery, he's, he's dying, and Morris knew the guy. He ended up not only not beating him up, he paid for the kid's surgery. You know, stuff like that. But he'd didn't, still he still cut your heart out for right. five grand. You didn't know he say I mean? to this guy, if the story you're telling me is true, yeah. I'll pay for the surgery, yes. but he yes. had to go to the hospital and see for That's himself. Correct. Right? That's correct. That's <laughs> correct. And he did, and he paid for the surgery. But that's the kind of... Uh, he was the most fascinating person I ever met. He was also responsible for my career. So uh, I try to be fair. It's, it's, it's hard because, uh, you know, a lot of shenanigans went on. A lot of stuff that uh, was pretty ugly happened, too. So you're out. It's hard enough to promote a record without any of this stuff. But you'll be out there promoting a record, and all of a sudden you'll get a phone call that it's time to go on the lam because things are getting a little hot in New York. What happened was a terrible gang war broke out in New York in 1971. This is when the Gambinos were taking over, and Morris was with the wrong family. Before the thing was over, there was like 300 mob guys that were killed. All over the city, they're finding bodies and stuff, and uh, Morris leaves town, and he, he and Nate McCalla go to Spain, and leave me and the rest of the employees there holding the bag. I was told by my attorney, probably it would be a great idea to uh, leave New York for a while because uh, if they can't get Morris, uh, they're going to go after whatever's making Morris money, and that's you. So I said, oh, great. That's just great. So I'm on the lam. Is that <laughs> so I go to Nashville. And I do an album with Pete Drake and DJ Fontana and Scotty Moore and Elvis's guys. And it was the most fun album I ever did, I, I must tell you. But I spent quite a time in Nashville. I mean, in fact, the cover of the book is the day I got back from Nashville. That was at the Plaza Hotel. <laughs> they say, Tom, what'd you do with that shirt? I think I smoked it. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, Morris came back and... Things were pretty shaky. Uh, meanwhile, Vito Genovese dies in prison. And this all kind of happened close together. Tommy Eberly, who was his 
Morris's business partner and the second in command uh, takes over as boss. And uh, listen to me here, takes over as boss, right? In 1972, I'm playing, uh, this is June of 72, I'm playing the Brooklyn Paramount Theater uh, where Alan Freed, by the way, Morris was Alan Freed's manager. I don't know if you ever knew <laughs> Do you know he came this close to trademarking the term rock and roll? Can you imagine? He actually, can you imagine if some guy owned rock and roll? But anyway, so as Tom, Tommy Eberly is coming out of his mistress's apartment six blocks away from where I'm playing and gets killed. They assassinate him. And so I go back to Roulette, and of course, the place is just going nuts. What does that mean, that this gang war has started up again? And uh, am I going to have to leave town again? And so I just, I got about half loaded, and I went up to Morris's office, and I said, I'm out of here. I said, I can't take this anymore. This is just too much. I, you know, I don't know what you expect from me, but I'm gone. And he says, you ain't going anywhere. I yelled at him, he yelled at me, and it was, you know, I was lucky to be able to leave there in one piece. But I did, and from that point until I got released in 74, I basically had to sabotage my career. And I had to not make any more records, and I had to, uh, you know, Morris put out records that were in the can, and they all charted, but I didn't make any new records. In 74, he finally let me go. But my publishing had to stay at Roulette. That was the catch, and it, it, my deal wasn't up till 79. So in uh, 79, I got my publishing back, but I went out to Fantasy Records. I got as far away from New York as I could in the 70s, and I did two albums with Fantasy, and then I came back in 78. I signed with uh, Jimmy Einer over at Millennium, who had, RCA was distributing it. We had several more hits, Three Times in Love, and finally in 1986, I happened to be looking for another record deal, and I go up to Roulette, what was left of Roulette, and I, I played uh, music for Morris. Uh, in fact, one of the songs, Distant Thunder, is going to be on the new album. We never had a chance to record it. I played it for Morris, and he says, I think that's a hit. And that was the last song you That was the last song I ever played for him, and he was arrested right after that. He had purchased uh, strawberries up in Boston. Record store, record yeah, chain. record chain. The, the feds grabbed him. What was amazing is that they had a camera and a microphone right behind him. Morris had this needlepoint uh, sign that said, Oh, Lord, give me a bastard with talent. And the feds put a microphone and a camera in the O of Lord. <laughs> Isn't that appropriate? <laughs> and, uh, of course, that means that I was on there, too. So uh, we ended up not doing a deal. He offered me a label, by the way, that day. And, uh, but it would have just been more of the same, you know, so I didn't do it. And he gets arrested, and he gets convicted, and he gets sentenced to 10 years in prison. And he dies of prostate cancer uh, before he can serve a day. And that was the Morris Levy story. Did you ever get a chance to say goodbye? I did not. And I, in the movie... Um, and in the book, the last scene is uh, where Morris passes away. And he asked for me, and I was playing in Chicago, and I was going to go up there the next day as soon as I got back. He died up, his, up at his farm. 
in upstate New York, and I was going to uh, go there, and just at the, uh, you know, he, he died right after my show in Chicago, and we get the word that he'd passed, and I was never able to uh, say goodbye to him. So in the movie, we have this, this uh, very touching moment where I'm, it's an imaginary conversation between me and Morris in the limousine where I'm going back to the hotel. That's the last scene, and the credits start rolling, and it's this beautiful night in Chicago, and the camera pans back on the skyline of Chicago, and the credits start rolling, and the version of I Think We're Alone Now that we just played you uh, starts. And that was uh, really it's going to be a very touching moment. And that's how you're on the book, too, yes. with that car ride. That's right. Mo Morris and my father died of the same thing the same year, 1990. I had very, very mixed feelings about Morris because I actually missed the guy because he and I, strangely, really understood each other and were very close at one level. You know, we'd go over the songs, go over the hits, and so that's how I feel. And in all this conversation, there's still so many hits we didn't even talk about. We didn't talk about Crystal Blue Persuasion. We didn't talk about Dragging the Line. We didn't yeah. talk about Tighter Tighter. <laughs> Any, uh, anything you want to say about any of those songs? Well, I just, first of all, I want to thank you guys for coming to this. This is, uh, and thank you for having me. This is a really uh, uh, a wonderful experience. I mean, the idea of going to major label and talking with the people at the label is just astonishing. By the way, I did this same sort of thing a few weeks ago at the Harry Fox organization. And who's Harry Fox? You know what I mean? You can't get a picture of this guy. He's like L. Ron Hubbard. You just cannot track this guy down. But uh, anyway, it was just, just a very great honor. And uh, I love Atlantic Records. I really do. I've lo always loved Atlantic Records. I always thought that uh, it was uh, one of the purest places there was for music. And uh, I keep remembering all, all the albums that uh, you had out at that very important moment and the acts that you had and, and still do. So I want to thank you, Pete. Thank you so much for coming in. Once thank again, you, Tommy James, everybody. God bless. Thank you, man. A new day is coming. Ooh, ooh. People are changing. Ain't it beautiful? Ooh, ooh. Crystal blue Thanks a lot to Tommy James for spending some time with us on Rock and Roll High School. You can hear Tommy's radio show every Sunday night on Sirius XM Channel 73, 60s Gold, between 5 and 8 Eastern. And make sure to visit TommyJames.com to see a list of upcoming tour dates. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastenau, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.